message um, I have for you this morning. Um, do you love a good garden? I wonder if you like a good garden, okay? Even as city dwellers, I'm a city boy, I'm a London boy, but even as city dwellers, I think many of us love a good garden. We like to go to a garden, go for a walk amongst the trees and the, the beautiful flowers, see the blossom and just take in the wonder of God's creation. Even in a, in a city, even in London, we can find our little patches of grass that we might have out the back of our house or our flat. Or maybe there's this kind of small window box where we have our little miniature garden. Uh, maybe there's an area right at the back of our house or flat where we, where we grow tomatoes or, or we grow peppers or chilies. or We have this little kind of window where we grow something. Now, growing up, uh, my dad uh, is a massive gardener. Massive kind of green-fingered man. He uh, he had a, a he worked a very high kind of profile job. Kind of worked a very stressful job, and his way of relaxing was to go into the garden. You know, it's like oh, dad's in for work. Where is he in the summertime? Oh, he's out in the garden, kind of chilling out, kind of letting the the day kind of drip off. Uh, Saturday morning, where's dad? He's in the garden. That's where he would be, kind of doing his runner beans or doing his tomatoes, his peppers, and all these other kind of things that uh, don't mean very much to me. But my dad loved uh, the garden. Me, not so much. I, I try to work out. I don't know what the opposite of a green-fingered person is. The, you know, the phrase, somebody likes gardeners, green-fingered. Uh, I'm not sure what it means if you're not into gardening. That's me. I don't know if that's like pink normal fingers. I, I don't know. But, you know, I'm, I'm kind of massively not into gardens. My dad was into gardens. And uh, let me just tell you a little story that I, I came across um, the other day about a 75-year-old man, retired man, who uh, decided to pick up gardening as a bit of a hobby. And uh, each year, this retired gentleman made it his responsibility to plant a vegetable patch out the back of his house. Uh, and he would plant it from scratch. And this particular year, he'd been doing it for many years, this particular year, 75 years old, uh, it was a challenge because there hadn't been much rain for a number of weeks uh, and the ground was very hard. Now, this retired gentleman had one son whose name was Vincent. That was his son. His son used to help him dig up the garden so he could then plant his vegetables. But unfortunately, Vincent was in prison. So the old man decided to write a letter to his son, Vincent, in prison. And the letter went something like this. Dear Vincent, I'm feeling pretty sad because it looks like this year I won't be able to plant my vegetable garden. I'm too old. The ground is too hard. I know if you'd been here, Vincent, you would have done it for me. But unfortunately, you're not able to do that. Days passed. And then the postman came and delivered a letter written by Vincent from prison. The letter said, Dear Papa, don't dig up that garden. That's where the bodies are buried. Love, Vincent. Very early the next morning, several detectives and forensic teams arrived at his house. 
And they dug up the entire garden in search of the bodies. But they found nothing and apologized to the old man and left. On that same day, the retired gentleman received another letter from his son, asking him now to plant the vegetables and hoping that the digging had been done. He signed off the letter saying, Dad, that's the best that I could do under the circumstances. So we're going to talk about gardens today. We're going to talk about gardens in Scripture. We're going to talk about God's redemptive plan for humanity that always included a garden. We're going to look at four gardens in Scripture, three on earth and one in heaven. So we're going to start with the first garden, which is the garden of creation. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 18 to 15, the garden of creation. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Fison. It winds through the entire land of Hevala where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and oxen are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The Garden of Eden was a delightful place, a place of paradise, a place where there were no weeds, a place where there was no thorns, no disease, no decay. Seven times in the first two chapters of Genesis, uh, we hear that it was good. Everything that God created was good. It was beautiful. It was good. And God created Adam and Eve out of nothing to tend and look after the garden. So we have this beautiful picture in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 of Adam and Eve walking with God in the cool of the day, walking with God in the Garden of Eden, walking with God, enjoying fellowship and enjoying paradise, enjoying perfection. The Garden of Eden is a place of relationship and intimacy and joy and growth and perfection. But someone else came into the garden, a serpent, a standing serpent who could talk, Satan, who had come to challenge God, who come to challenge Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read that Adam and Eve listened to the lies of Satan. They did the one thing that God asked them not to do. And their act of disobedience changed everything. 
The result of their act of disobedience was that we read right at the end of Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent Adam and Eve out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which Adam was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden of Eden, the garden of creation. So then let's come to the second garden we're going to look at today, the second garden. The second garden is the garden of affliction. So back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we read that right after Adam and Eve sinned, there is a promise of one who will come, born of a woman, and will crush the head of Satan. That was Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born. He came. He lived the perfect life. He did not sin. He came at just the right time. He taught. He did miracles. He lived his life on this earth without sin. And we get to a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. The garden of Gethsemane was a garden just outside of Jerusalem. The name Gethsemane means olive press in Hebrew. It's where you got oil from, the olive press. Now, now oil was a precious commodity back then. Oil was what you used to cook. Oil was what you used to lamps and, and, and lights, and, and you anointed people with oil. Oil was a precious commodity. And Jesus was pressed and crushed in the garden of affliction, in the garden of Gethsemane. Let's just read. John chapter 18 and verse 1 tells us that it was a garden. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. Let's pick up the story then in Luke 22. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened Jesus. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like the drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So Jesus is in the garden of affliction. He is in the garden of Gethsemane. He is sweating drops of blood. It is a physical, medical condition when you are so severely stressed 
that your body won't sweat, uh, sweat, sweat. It will sweat blood because you are so anguished and tortured inside. And Jesus says, look, not my will, but yours, Lord, be done. If it is possible, God, for there to be any other way, let it be so. But if not, I will go to the cross. Jesus is suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane for the sin that began in the first garden. You've got to understand this. You see, Jesus came into the Garden of Affliction because of the sin that began in the Garden of Creation. And someone else came into the garden that night, Judas, with a whole bunch of soldiers. And they came and arrested Jesus. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver by one of his own. And after three civil trials and three religious trials, Jesus was then crucified on a cross. He died on Good Friday. He died in our place. He died the horrific criminal's Roman death on a cross. So we have the garden of creation. We have the garden of affliction. And then we come to the garden of resurrection, where Jesus' body was buried in a garden. Let's read John 19, verses 38 to 41. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Jesus was carried as a corpse and put into a tomb in a garden. It was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. He was a rich Jewish believer. That was where Jewish, that was where Jesus, sorry, was laid. And what we have here in our third garden is a garden of hope. A garden that goes from a garden of despair, a garden of death, to a garden of deliverance. You see, Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. That garden housed an empty tomb. The death had been conquered. Jesus was the grave robber. Now, let me just say this, just, by, just, just as an aside. This is important. Christianity is the only religion that claims a bodily resurrection. 
You can go around the globe and find where Muhammad is laid. You can go around the world and find where the remains of Abraham are laid, where the remains of great men and women throughout history, whether it be Martin Luther King or, or Gandhi or whoever it may be, great men and women, you find their grave. You find where their bodily remains have been laid. Christianity has no bodily remains for Jesus Christ. We just have an empty tomb. He is not there. He is in heaven. He has risen again. The easiest way to blow Christianity out of the water is to produce a body. And over 2,000 years, no one has ever even claimed to produce the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus is our living hope. He is the one who has defeated death. The resurrection is our living hope. It's our living hope. Our living hope is in Jesus who lived the perfect life, who his ministry over three years was one of miracles and teaching, who died on the cross in our place and three days later rose again. Jesus is Alive, We go from hopeless living to a living hope because of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, believe in me and have everlasting life. You see, once Jesus rose from the dead, then all those promises became true. Up until that point, those promises weren't fulfilled. But the minute that Jesus rose from the dead, those promises become fulfilled. I want to tell you about something uh, that I learned a little bit about this week. Some of you may know about this, but it's the, the law of entropy. The law of entropy is this. If left to his own devices, everything in this universe will decay. Food will rot. Milk goes off. Cars over time, especially older cars, will, will rust and fall apart. Human beings, no matter the cosmic surgery, cosmetic surgery, sorry, and no matter the makeup and no matter the things we try and do to our bodies, humans will grow old and eventually die. You see, the only way to prevent or at least pause or push back on the law of entropy is to introduce an outside energy source to counteract it. That's what happens in your refrigerator. That's what happens in your fridge. In your kitchen, your fridge, this is what is happening. Because when you plug in your refrigerator, what you are doing is producing cold air that keeps the food from rotting. You know, if you ever had that experience when you've been away on holiday and then you find out you've got a power cut and you walk into the house and the smell hits you, the smell of kind of like rotting food because your fridge has been turned off and everything in it, the milk and the vegetables and the meat and everything has gone off and it absolutely stinks. You see, the law of entropy is everywhere in our universe, but it isn't just in the physical it also governs the spiritual universe. Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden by eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, yes, they didn't die immediately. 
They didn't die immediately from, from that act, but what they did was they introduced a process of decay that led to both spiritual and physical death. They introduced sin into the world, and sin is like a slow-acting poison of decay, of sickness, of suffering, of pain. When Jesus rose again, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he reversed the process. That's what happened when Jesus rose again. He reversed the process. You see, in Christ Jesus, death is defeated once and for all, and it is the end to entropy in heaven. It's the end. It's the end to that process through the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. It's why in 1 Corinthians 15, we can say, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The, the process has been reversed. So we've looked at three gardens. We've looked at the garden of creation, the garden of affliction, the garden of Gethsemane, and the garden of resurrection, which we are celebrating today on Easter Sunday. But there is a fourth garden. There is the garden of restoration. You see, after 40 days as the risen Savior, Jesus then ascended to heaven. Jesus said, I've ascended to heaven to prepare a place for each one of you. Now, heaven is often referred to as paradise in Scripture. And William Barclay, who's a well-known uh, Bible commentator, helps us and says that paradise is referred to in ancient times as a walled garden. It was the place where the king would invite special friends and family to come and walk with him around a beautiful walled garden where everything is manicured and everything is perfect. That was paradise in the ancient times where you would get an invite from the king to come if you were a special confidant or a special member of the king's family and you would walk around and enjoy paradise, enjoy the walled garden. Let's read Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3. Then the angels showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. It's a picture of the new heaven and the new earth, where there is no curse, where there is no decay, where there is no disease, where there is no pain and no suffering. 
It's a garden where there is the tree of life bearing fruit for the healing of the nations. The curse has gone. You see, what Adam did in the first garden, Jesus suffered in the second garden. Jesus buried and conquered in the third garden. And because of Jesus' work in the second and the third garden, there's an invitation to every single one of you to join Jesus in the fourth garden, in heaven. We're invited to paradise. We're invited to be with Jesus in heaven. You see, if you are a Christian and have a relationship with Jesus, you will get to go to that garden to paradise for all eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation is to all mankind. The spirit and the bride say, come. Whoever is thirsty, come, let let him drink, the Lord Jesus says. The, the, The invitation is to all mankind. The invitation is to all the nations of the world. Remember what you may have read on Good Friday, about Jesus hanging on the cross. And the Gospels talk about two criminals nailed either side. And one of them speaks to Jesus and and asks him for help and says, you don't deserve to be here, I do. And basically puts his faith and trust in Jesus right there with almost his last breath. And do you know what Jesus says to him? Do you know the words the scripture tell us? Jesus says to that criminal who puts his faith and trust in Jesus with almost his last breath, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in that walled garden. Today you'll be with me in heaven. You see, this Easter Sunday, Jesus is inviting each and every one of us to a place of relationship, to a place of intimacy with him in paradise. The sin, the decay, the disease of the first garden has been dealt with by Jesus in the second and the third garden so that the invitation is there for every single one of us to enjoy heaven to enjoy eternal life. I wonder if you ever asked the question, well, Mark, that sounds great. So, so how, how? How do I receive eternal life? What do I do? What does it look like? Well, I find something really helpful is A, B, C, D. How do I receive eternal life? A, admit that I am a sinner, that I've fallen short of the glory of God, that I am not perfect. B, believe Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross in your place. Believe that the Lord Jesus lived the perfect life and died on the cross. Three days later, rising again. Admit, believe. Three is confess. Confess, repent, turn from your wicked ways. Confess and Believe, confess, and put your faith and trust in Jesus. And D is simply 
do. Simply put that in to practice. Simply take that step. Simply do what the Lord puts in front of you. Simply take that invitation. Take that invitation to paradise and to heaven. Receive the resurrection life. Receive that invite to a living hope. We're going to close this morning in terms of the preach before we worship some more. We're going to close with with two responses. And I want to lay them out very clearly. The first response is anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I, I just this Easter Sunday want to give you an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus. To take that invitation and know that today, today you can be certain of your place in paradise, your place in heaven, your place with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to pray about that in a moment. The second challenge I want to bring is for those of us that that know the Lord Jesus, that love the Lord Jesus, that are thankful today for Easter Sunday and for the resurrection, I want to challenge us to a resurrection faith. What I mean by that is a faith that refuses to believe that all is lost. A faith that refuses to believe that there are areas in our lives or areas in this world that are too difficult for the Lord Jesus to work in. Because one of my thoughts about why, why don't we see the miracles we desire? Why, why don't we see God break through in the ways that we would love to see him break through? Is so often we don't put ourselves in a situation that necessitates a miracle. We don't put ourselves in a place where it needs the Lord to do a miracle. In other words, we're so, we're so happy with our own ability. We're so happy with our own resourcefulness. But if we want the miracle, we so often need to put ourselves in a position that only God can do the miracle. Only God can break through. You see, when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he removed the word impossible from our vocabulary. He is the grave robber. That is resurrection faith, that Jesus robbed the grave. So because of that, all things are possible in Christ Jesus. So Adam and Dione, if you could come up ready, we're going to bow our heads for a moment and respond in two ways to what we've heard this morning. Firstly, let me just take a moment. And why don't you take a moment to sit still before the Lord. If anyone here today does not know the Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. They do not know with certainty that they will go to paradise, to heaven, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give an opportunity for you to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus today, on Easter Sunday. What a perfect, brilliant day to do that.
So let's pray. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, He is here and He is offering you an invitation. And the invitation is very simple come, come, come. My grace is sufficient. Come. Put your faith and trust in me. Come. Let me wipe away your sin. Let me wipe away your past. Let me wipe away your guilt. And let me give you the gift of eternal life, of a relationship with the living God. It's a moment you can go from hopeless living to the living hope of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ to admit that we've fallen short, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to confess and repent and turn from our wicked ways and to do, to right now do it, to let the Lord Jesus come into our lives. I'm going to lead you in a short prayer, a short prayer of commitment, a short prayer of putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. I'm going to pray it slowly, pray it quiet. I'm going to pray it slowly. If you'd like to pray it quietly where you are, just do that. The Lord Jesus will hear you. The Lord Jesus will respond. Father, I know that I have got things wrong. I know that I have sinned. But Jesus, I thank you that you died for me that you lived the perfect life and died in my place. Today, I choose to repent, to turn from my wicked ways and to put my faith and trust in you. Lord, thank you that as I have prayed this prayer, you have come into my life. Holy Spirit has come. Christ has come to dwell inside of you. Lord, we seal this in Jesus' name. Amen.